The Curse of Vedwin Vaur. Prenanda, said the vicar as I stepped into the church porch. I wasn't going to answer him in Welsh, but I said good afternoon and nodded politely. He held up his finger to stop me going any further and fixed me with a fierce glare. So, to what do we owe the pleasure? I'm Berrien's cousin. Are you indeed? I was somewhat perplexed by the welcome. Well, if your family, it's too bad you never visited when he was alive, don't you think? I really wasn't expecting this. I was quite taken aback. That poor man, that poor, pious, generous man, he was left to fend for himself for years, despite his disabilities, despite his misfortunes, with no one but us at the church for comfort. You couldn't be bothered with him then, could you? It was true that no one in my family had visited in a long time, but that was hardly any of the vicar's business. I thought someone like you might turn up, his eyes narrowed. But if you've come to get your hands on Vedwin Vaur, you'll get more than you bargain for, believe me. And then he dropped his finger and gestured for me to enter the church. To be honest, I thought it was a cheek. I marched up the aisle to the front pew where I assumed close family were expected to sit. I regained my composure and then turned to look around. It was a drab little church, no stained glass, plain whitewashed walls. There wasn't much of a turnout, perhaps ten or twelve people scattered around. But then Berrien had always been a bit of a hermit. As far as I knew, he rarely left the farm after his brother died, and before that the two of them had kept to themselves, never married, never had much to do with the rest of the community. I'd heard nothing of him for years, so the message from the solicitor was a bolt from the blue. I've no idea how they tracked me down, but it seemed that Berrien had died of a heart attack, and as no will had been found they had started looking into who might inherit his estate. Now, that certainly got my attention. I was in a bit of a sticky spot financially. A messy divorce, a couple of property deals that had gone sour. I won't bore you with the details, but a little windfall would be most welcome. The coffin came in on the shoulders of the funeral directors, with an elderly couple walking behind, leaning heavily on each other as they followed it up the aisle. Who are they? A woman behind me whispered. Relations, I think, said the man next to her. That was interesting. I glanced across at the elderly couple as they shuffled into their pew. I had been under the impression I was Berrien's only living relative. It would be a blow if it turned out that I wasn't. I pondered the thought as the vicar droned on in Welsh. When he was done, we trooped outside for the burial. As we waited... I realised I must have looked rather out of place in my dark city suit and polished brogues. I could tell people were nudging each other and smirking. The elderly couple were on the other side of the open grave, talking to a burly young fellow with a severe haircut and an alarmingly tight blue jacket. Every time he moved, it looked like the ripple of his muscles would split the seams. A rugby player, I guessed. This was rugby country, after all. The pallbearers came at last and lowered the coffin into the ground. The vicar said a final few words and then, 
with almost indecent haste, everyone turned and scuttled towards their cars. I caught up with the elderly couple by the church porch and introduced myself. They were called Mr. and Mrs. Pruddock, they told me. They seemed the very picture of stout, sober, rural Welsh togetherness. I was hoping I could see the old farmhouse, I said. They looked at each other. We wouldn't advise it, said Mrs. Pruddock. The thing is, I'm only here for a few hours, and it would be a good opportunity. Do you know who the keyholders are? Well, we are, she said, but I'm afraid we gave the keys to Berrien's other cousin. We met him just now at the graveside. Ah, that was not what I wanted to hear. So it wasn't just these two. There was someone else with a claim as well. Damn. Has he gone over there already? I asked. He left just a few minutes ago. Oh, that's all right, I can walk. Don't you have your car with you? asked Mrs. Pruthock. No, I came by train to Carmarthen and caught a cab. A taxi all the way here? That raised an eyebrow. Mrs. Pruthock whispered something to her husband in Welsh. Well, said Mr. Pruthock, Vedwin is over in the next village. It's much too far to walk, but uh, we can give you a lift if you're really sure you want to go. Absolutely sure, I said. That's very kind of you. Fifteen minutes later, we turned off the main road and went up a winding lane with neat new-build homes on either side. They dropped me at the farm gate. Can you ask your cousin to drop the keys back when you've finished? called Mrs. Pruthock. He knows where to find us. So, Vedwin Vaur. The house stood at the top of a rise about twenty yards above the road. It was double-fronted with a flight of steps leading up to the main door in the middle. I'd only ever seen it in the family photo album, but that was back in its heyday, when it had been a solid, respectable place. Now it was a desolate prospect. The windows were blank and uncurtained. The guttering on the right drooped where it had come away from the wall, and ivy had swarmed over every patch of brickwork and hung thick and dark across the whole façade. The front door was unlocked, so I pushed it open. Hello? I called. Anyone here? The hallway had bare floorboards and an unshaded light bulb dangling from the ceiling. Hello? I called again. There was no reply. So I wandered in and stuck my head through the doorway on the right. It must have been a reception room once, but it was in a shocking state of dereliction. The plaster had fallen away from the wall above the fireplace. Black rubbish sacks and cardboard boxes were strewn around, overflowing with papers and documents. There was no furniture except for a battered brown armchair and a heavy wooden dresser, both covered with a thick layer of dust. On top of the dresser were a few framed photographs. Family, by the look of them. I pulled the tissue out of my pocket and was wiping away the grime when there was a voice behind me. And all might you be? I turned round and saw the rugby player who'd been with the products at the graveside. Hello, I said. I'm Berrien's cousin. Like El you are. He was probably seven or eight years younger than me, and up close you could see he had the cauliflower ears of a seasoned front row forward. 
He clearly fancied himself as something of a hard man. Well, come on. Who are you? All right, I said. I showed him the photograph in my hand. It was black and white, probably taken sometime in the early 1960s. I pointed to a middle-aged man in a sports jacket, holding a horse by its bridle. That's my grandfather, Gitto Price, I said. And the young man next to him is his nephew, Berrien's brother, Alan. I knew it was Alan from photos I'd seen before. He had a sullen, unresponsive look and a distinctive white scar across his left cheek. And on the horse, I continued, I'm pretty certain that's my mother, Joyce. I picked up another photo from the dresser and handed it to him. Now you tell me who you recognize. He looked at it for a moment and then put it down. Okay, he said, I'm sorry if I was a bit off with you just now. Oh, that's all right. You probably thought I was some chancer up from London. Oh, no, he said and started to flush. Well, all right, yes, perhaps I did. You can't be too careful, though, can you? And so who are you, then, if that's not too much to ask? Well, I'm a cousin, too, but I'm on the other side. Berrien's mother was my mother's auntie. I think I've got that right. Is that so? Yes. We were never that close to them. I... uh, He was growing redder and redder. I don't know what to say, really, but I am a cousin. Really, I am. You'll just have to take my word for it. He became so embarrassed so rapidly that I couldn't help but believe him. Edward Corbett, I said, holding out my hand. Call me Ed. Rhys, he said. Rhys Watkins. He had a grip that could crush a rock. It's a hell of a mess, isn't it? I said. Unbelievable. And you should see the rest of the house. Come on, I'll show you. He led the way across the hallway and into the other reception room. Like the previous one, it was uncarpeted and strewn with boxes and plastic bags full of rubbish. A bureau was standing at an angle in the bay, with a mouldering box of apples balanced on top. I don't know how anyone could live like this, I said. No, and it wasn't like he was short of a penny. Oh, how do you know that? Well, it was a dairy farm, wasn't it? They must have had plenty of land at one time. But he sold the lot. That's what that old couple told me, piece by piece over the years. Nothing left but the little garden round the house. Did you see all those new homes as you came up the lane? All built on the old farmland. I know it's not the priciest part of the country, but he can't have done badly out of it. And then he chose to live like this. Doesn't make any sense. No, not to me anyway, said Rhys. Shall we go upstairs? It doesn't get any better, mind. It didn't. The only room that wasn't in a shocking state of decrepitude was Berrien's bedroom, although that too was fairly squalid. It was packed tight with heavy, dark, old furniture, with a gloomy print of John the Baptist hanging above the bed, his index finger pointing mournfully at the heavens. The dressing table and chest of drawers were both piled high with stacks of books, which on closer inspection were Bibles. There must have been about thirty of them, all different kinds. The Holy Bible, the Study Bible, a Bible Kamraig Newith, the Good News Bible. He was certainly a religious old fella, said Rhys. And what about this, I said. I had picked up a spiral-bound notebook from the dressing table, It was filled with page after page of handwritten monologues. I read one out at random, 
What I have to say to you is extremely important and urgent. You have been paid in full, but the spectacles I ordered on the 3rd of April have still not arrived. This is outrageous. It went on like that for three or four pages. What do you make of it? I asked him. Oh, my father used to do that. It's what Welsh speakers do when they start losing their English. If my dad had to speak to someone, you know, on the phone or something, he'd always write out what he wanted to say in advance. Like a script. Yes, you could say that. I put the notebook back on the dressing table and suddenly felt an icy draught rush up the stairs. What the hell's that? said Reese. We both stood and listened. There was a fluttering noise somewhere downstairs, like leaves swirling or bits of paper blowing about. It's just the wind, I said. I probably left the front door open. His pale blue eyes flickered for a moment. Despite the cauliflower ears and the muscle-bound physique, there was a nervous streak in Reese. I could see that already. Yes, uh, you're probably right, he said, and rubbed his hands together. Now, I can't stay much longer. I've got a long drive back. So let's level with each other. We both know the real reason we're here, to find out what there is and whether we're entitled to it. Am I right? I nodded. So I don't want to sound too mercenary, but the family would have had valuables. The same thought had occurred to me. You're right, I said. The women would have had jewellery for sure. And so I'm guessing that somewhere in the house there must be a safe. Is there a cellar? Yes. I had a quick look, but there's nothing down there except a couple of old freezers and some tools. My guess would be the kitchen. The kitchen was in the same chaos as the rest of the house. There was a great mound of unopened mail against the back door, an old-fashioned grease-spattered range, and a rickety kitchen table with a couple of broken-backed chairs. Let's have a look in here, said Reese, opening a tall, built-in cupboard at one end. No... Just the meters. Still, at least the electric's still run in. I tried a half-height cupboard set into the wall under the staircase. Aha! I said. Result! The safe was a square, solid thing that looked like it had been there as long as the house itself. The only problem is we don't have a key. Rhys came to look over my shoulder. Just a second, Edward, he said. I've got an idea. He reached past me and tugged on the handle. The door swung open slowly to reveal two perfectly empty compartments. Reese and I looked at each other. But now I come to think of it, I've got another idea. He took the stairs two at a time and grabbed the ladder that leant against the wall of the landing. I hadn't noticed before, but the loft trap was open. Reese climbed up, stuck his head through the hatch and came straight back down. See for yourself, he said. I went up the ladder and looked around the loft space. There was nothing there but a water tank and a few old newspapers. How many years has the family lived here, would you say? called Reese. Well over a hundred, isn't it? And whoever heard of any family with an empty loft? So that's why all the rooms are full of bags and boxes, I said as I came down the ladder. Someone's brought everything down. That's why there's hardly any furniture in the house, more to the point, said Reese. No clocks, no silver, no valuables, no nothing. They've stripped the place bare. But who? I asked. Well, there's no sign of a break-in, is there? Whoever did it took their time. Came back and forth with a van, most likely. 
Hmm, I see what you mean. So who do you think? Well, it's obvious. Who had the keys? You mean the products? No, they don't seem the type. Don't judge a book by its cover, Edward. When I asked them for the keys back there at the church, they were very reluctant to hand them over. Why do you think that was? It was an interesting point. They weren't keen on me coming either, I said. There you are, then. I mean, who else could it be? The vultures. We walked down the stairs in silence and stood in the hall for a few moments. We were probably both thinking the same thing. There wasn't much point reporting it to the police. We had no idea what had been taken, and there wasn't much point confronting the products either. They would surely just deny it. So, that's that then, really, said Rhys. There's not much more we can do here. I'd best be on my way. Uh, will you be all right? I'll call a cab to take me back to Carmarthen. Rhys looked at his watch. I wouldn't hold out much hope, he said. It's nearly six o'clock. I'm sorry. Well, nobody will come out this far, so late in the day. You're in the back of beyond, remember? I would drive you myself, but I'm going in completely the opposite direction. I don't suppose there's a hotel around, I asked. There might be a B&B, &B, but I couldn't tell you where. And anyway, they've probably shut up shop this time of year. I see. The only possible solution was beginning to dawn on me. So perhaps I'd better stay here tonight. Reese's pale blue eyes opened a tad wider. Really? He said, oh, I wouldn't fancy it myself. There's a bit of an atmosphere about this place, isn't there? Do you think so? I said, well, I'm not the nervous type. I rather enjoyed impressing him. I'd slept in worse places than this in my life. And it wouldn't hurt to spend a few hours poking around Vedwin Vaur. Because it was clear that someone had helped themselves to a chunk of my inheritance, and if I could prove who it was, an uncomfortable night would be a small price to pay. You get going, I said to Rhys. I'll be fine here. Rhys gave me a lift as far as the village so I could buy some provisions and then I traipsed back up the winding lane in the failing light. I unlocked the front door and prowled around the house for a few minutes. Of course, Rhys was right. There was an atmosphere. But then there would be, wouldn't there? Abandoned old houses always feel creepy. But it wasn't something I would allow myself to be troubled by. I paced up and down the hallway and came to a halt by the front door. There was a Bible open on the little telephone table next to it, and I saw that someone, Berrien, presumably, had drawn a square in pencil around a verse halfway down the page. The Gospel according to Peter, chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, I read. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. <laughs> he had to laugh, really. It was almost like it had been put there as a test of nerve. I shook my head, went into the kitchen and sat down at the rickety old table. I poured myself a large glass of the cheap Australian red I'd bought in the village. It was time to get to work. There was no obvious place to start my investigations, so I picked up an armful of mail from the heap beneath the back door. It was the usual stuff, banks and bills, 
charities, flyers, circulars. But as I tossed one after the other unopened onto the floor, it started to occur to me that there were rather a lot from charities. An awful lot. And an awful lot from the same charities at that. Bible societies in unlikely parts of the world. Leper villages. Missionary organisations. I tore open one of the Bible envelopes. Dear Mr Price, thank you for your generous donation of £3,000. I ripped open another. Thank you for your contribution of 4500 Your gift of £2,500 was much appreciated. Your £500 is such a help. Envelope after envelope told a similar story. It was extraordinary. And who knows how long this had been going on. A torrent of money could have been pouring out of this semi-derelict Welsh farmhouse to fund Bibles for Manchurians and Christian outreach projects for Amazonian tribes and God knows what else. What on earth did Berrien think he was doing? I thought about it for a moment. Had these charities been preying on my vulnerable elderly cousin? Because I'd read about that kind of thing. They were unscrupulous once they got their hooks into you. But of course... That might not be it. It might be philanthropy, pure and simple. Or perhaps he'd done it to spite the remaining members of his neglectful family. It might have been his way of having the last laugh. Anyway, as my potential inheritance seemed to dwindle by the moment, I now had a second mystery to solve. Not just who had ransacked the farmhouse, but also why had my cousin been handing over large sums of money to obscure and probably completely undeserving charities. I had an evening to find out what I could. I'd noticed quite a number of Berrien's spiral-bound notebooks lying around the house, so I gathered as many as I could find, piled them up on the kitchen table and started to flip through them. There were rants to the bank manager, the pharmacist, the dentist, the local supermarket... I could just imagine how pleased they'd be to pick up the phone and find him on the line. A fair share of them were complaints. The service I received yesterday was shocking. The young woman at the cash desk was unhelpful and insolent and should, in my opinion, be dismissed from your employ. And there were a large number about money. You say you are entitled to 50%, but I don't know where you got that idea from because you are not... And it is not just me who says so, it is the law of the land. But there were also some on points of theology. The Reverend Morris says that you cannot atone for the sins of another, but I have looked into this more carefully than he has, and it is my firm belief that you can. By the time I was halfway through my second bottle of wine, I had formed a strong impression of a lonely, bitter, disputatious old man, with an unshakable belief in his own total rectitude. I folded my arms on the table, rested my head, and tried to picture him. Berrien Price, my first cousin once removed. I awoke with a shiver and a nasty crick in my neck. There was an icy draught and a faint fluttering noise from somewhere. I checked my phone. It was well after one... I must have been asleep for a couple of hours. I couldn't stay like that for the rest of the night, and I knew there was only one place to lie down in the house. I got unsteadily to my feet 
and blundered upstairs to Berrien's bed. There was no way I was actually getting into it, though. Instead, I lay down on top of the Eiderdown, still in my funeral suit and boots, and let the wine do its job. And it did. I closed my eyes and was asleep in moments. But it was as disturbed a night as I could remember. I knew I dreamt, but whenever I awoke I could never recall what about. And each time I was colder than before. The house was absolutely freezing. Around four I found myself shivering convulsively, with my breath appearing as a mist before my eyes, and I decided I would have to do something. I got up, looked in Berrien's wardrobe and found one of his old black greatcoats. It stank of must and mud and sweat and sour decay, but I didn't care. I lay on my back, put it over myself, and let its faint warmth coax me back to sleep. The dreams came more vividly after that. A sense of the walls closing in, the ceiling descending, feeling trapped, helpless. I writhed beneath the greatcoat, shook myself awake and shivered. I did the same again and again and again, until the knocking came. I heard it with perfect clarity. It came again, and then I sensed a presence entering the house. It paused in the hallway. I couldn't yet tell what kind of creature it was, but I could feel it hesitate and sniff the air. It knew I was there, and it had resolved upon a course of action, because I could sense it fill with purpose. There was a creak as it leant against the newel post at the bottom of the stairs, and then a thud as it placed its foot on the step. It was coming. I tried to move my legs, but they wouldn't respond. Meanwhile, it climbed slowly and heavily. It paused halfway up. I could hear it wheezing now. I needed to do something. I needed to act, but I was pinned there. The banister groaned underneath its weight, and it forced itself up the final few steps. One, two, three, four... It caught its breath in short, savage grunts, outside on the landing. I still couldn't move. I was trapped. I knew I hadn't bolted the door. Whatever it was, I was at its mercy. But it didn't burst in on me. Instead, it tapped gently. I held my breath. It tapped again. Hello? Is anyone there? I sat bolt upright. Mr. Corbett? Mr. Watkins? Is one of you in there? The room was light. It was day outside. It's uh, Mr. Pradock, said the voice. I slumped back against the headboard. Oh, for God's sake. Uh, hello, Mr. Pradock, I called. It's Ed Corbett here. Well, that's a relief, he said through the door. We're sorry to disturb you, but your cousin didn't bring the keys back, so we thought we'd better check everything was okay. Uh, just give me a moment, I said. I ran my fingers through my hair and made a forlorn attempt to smooth the wrinkles out of my suit. I found the Pruthocks outside on the front path. There was a chill wind blowing up from the valley, so I invited them in. Oh, no thank you said Mrs. Pruthock. I'm amazed you spent the night here. Did you get a wink of sleep? Oh, I can sleep anywhere, I reassured her. 
It's a terrible mess, though, isn't it? said her husband. I wasn't expecting it to be quite like that. But I thought you knew this house, I said. No, we've never set foot in the place before, said Mrs. Prothock. But if you're the key holders, I said, aren't you family? Oh, no, she said. We just knew him a little better than most. We shared a keen interest in the Bible. I see, I said, somewhat puzzled. The thing is, Mrs. Prother continued, we didn't want to mention it yesterday because it sounds a bit, well, it sounds a bit fanciful. But people round here tend to avoid Vedwin Vaur. They, uh, um, she hesitated. People say it's cursed said her husband. It's nonsense, of course, but even so, I don't think anyone from round here has set foot inside the house these last twenty years. Not since Berrien's poor brother Alan died, added Mrs. Prothock. Before then, of course, it was different. I wasn't sure what to make of this. How do you mean, different? Well, it was a thriving farm, wasn't it? Always had been. At one time, the family were probably the wealthiest in the whole valley— so what happened? Surely you know. No, I don't think I do. Mr. Prothock drew a deep breath. Well, it must have been 2001, you know, uh, during the Blair years. I don't know if you remember foot and mouth disease. It might have passed you by up in London, but down here it was a tragedy. The only way to stop it was to destroy the whole herd. That's what they told us. It might sound like nothing to you, but the farmers knew every one of their cattle, knew every one of them by name. Oh, it was terrible. The brothers had to shoot them and then make great piles of them. Pyres, I think is the word. Pyre after pyre in the bottom field. The one where they've got that little banjo of new homes now. Both of them took it badly. It wasn't just their livelihood. It was everything to them. But Alan, he took it worst. He was, what shall I say, he was a simple fellow. He preferred his cattle to people, I think, and I believe it broke his heart, because he died not long after. I'm sorry, I said, because I was starting to feel a little guilty. None of us even came to his funeral. No, well, nor did we, said Mrs. Prothock in a kindly way. We didn't really know them back then. Alan would have been buried in the Church of Wales graveyard on the other side of the village. That's where the whole family used to worship. Berrien only joined our church after Alan died. I see. There was a pause. I'm sorry, Mr. Corbett, said Mr. Prothock. You must think we're the most terrible gossips. No, not at all, I said. Well, now, said Mrs. Prothock, I don't know if you're planning to stay another night. Most definitely not. Then, with the greatest respect, could we possibly ask for the keys back? Of course. And the solicitors have been on the phone. They want to go in there next week and make an inventory of any valuables. After that, they'll get a company to come in and clear the place, if that's okay with you and Mr Watkins. It's fine with me, I said. Obviously, you can take anything of sentimental value... But everything else will go in the skip, I'm afraid. When the products had gone, I sat down on one of the broken-backed kitchen chairs and thought for a moment. They certainly didn't seem like people who had recently ransacked the place, not unless they were the most brilliant actors.
and if it wasn't them, then I didn't have a clue where to start. No, I would have to accept defeat. There was nothing else to be done. The sale of the farmhouse would bring me in a few quid, maybe not as much as I'd hoped, but it would surely be enough to get me back on my feet. It was time to get back to London. I took up my phone and started to trawl for a taxi to take me to Carmarthen Station. Eventually I found a driver in the next village who could pick me up in an hour or so. I wasn't in the mood to make conversation, so we drove along in silence for ten minutes. Then he caught my eye in the mirror and said, So you've been looking at Berrien Price's house. Are you thinking of buying? No, I said. I'm a relation. Oh, I'm sorry. My condolences. I didn't know him well, but uh, I picked him up a few times. I used to drive him down to his bank in Carmarthen. Oh, yes, I said, without much interest. Not often, mind. Three or four times a year, I would say. I didn't bother to reply, but he went on. Yes, him and his friend. Sorry, I said, his friend? He caught my eye in the mirror again, enjoying the moment. Yes, uh, his lady friend. He must have seen I looked shocked. I'm not suggesting there was anything improper, he said. He wasn't the type, as I'm sure you know. I'm sorry. What do you mean? Well, he wasn't exactly <laughs> the romantic type, was he? He laughed. You know, uh, with his two walking sticks and that severe expression on his face all the time. And uh, she was way younger, 40 years younger, I would say. So you're saying that Berrien went to his bank in Carmarthen with a woman? Well, yes. Several times a year? Yes, I can't remember exactly how many. I'm sorry, I said. Would you mind turning round? What? I need to go back to the house. He wasn't at all pleased, and he was even less impressed when I let him go without a tip. But I wasn't feeling in a generous mood. I forced the kitchen window at the back, climbed in and got straight to work. Now I had an idea of what I was looking for, things started falling into place. It helped that Berrien had been such a hoarder. He'd kept everything. Supermarket receipts, paying-in slips, invoices, shopping lists. I realised the record of his entire life was crammed into the sacks and bags and boxes strewn around. I tipped one after another upside down. It was the bank records I was after. Although it was soon apparent he had plenty of different accounts. Personal, business, building societies too. But there was too much of it and too much detail. And then something caught my eye. It was the banner across the top of a receipt in a shade of turquoise you wouldn't associate with an elderly Welsh dairy farmer. On closer inspection, it was the bill from a cafe in St. Catherine Street, Carmarthen. Nothing special, just two cups of tea. It was the fact that there were two cups of tea that was significant. I rummaged through some more of the junk that had come out of the same sack, and well, 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 look at that. Two tickets for a prayer meeting at the Bethesda Hall. And in the top corners were written the names of the holders, Berrien Price and Rowena Harrison. Bingo! I went back to the bank statements, and it all came into focus. No matter which account I went to, alongside the thousands paid out to charities, there was always the odd thousand here and there, sometimes more, to R. Harrison, Ms. Harrison, Rowena Harrison... But what on earth to make of it? 
Why would Berrien take this woman to his bank and a prayer meeting in Carmarthen several times a year? Was this some kind of late-life infatuation? Was everything I'd discovered so far about him completely wrong? Surely not. It seemed incredible that a confirmed bachelor like him would take a lover in his seventies. Or had she been a Bible buddy, perhaps? Had she somehow gained his trust through displays of prayer and devotion? That seemed more believable. But the Provocks had made no mention of a companion, and I hadn't noticed anyone who fitted the bill at the funeral. Or was it something else entirely? And if so, what? Did she have something over him? Now, there's a thought. But if she did, what the hell could it be? I paced up and down the kitchen, making little progress with this line of speculation, when another thought occurred. Why not look her up on Facebook? I got out my phone. So, Rowena Harrison. It didn't take more than a minute or two to boil down the likely candidates to someone from the surrounding area. And suddenly, there she was. An overweight woman in her early thirties, with closely cropped hair, dyed a shade of plum. She was raising a glass and looking extremely pleased with herself. And my God, no wonder, because there in the background was the infinity pool of the five-star Salt Bay Resort Hotel, Florida Keys, USA. The picture had been posted yesterday. Yes, and I think I could guess where the funding for that little jaunt had come from. I called Reese straight away. I found the person who looted the farmhouse, I said, but I'm going to need some help to prove it. Can you get over here? You're joking. It's a two-hour drive. He dropped his voice to a whisper. And the wife's being rather difficult at the moment. I don't think she'd like it. Look, Reese. Something has been going on here, and it might be in both our interests to find out what it is. I don't see why I should do all the bloody work. Perhaps you can explain that to your wife. All right. I talk to her. Don't just talk to her. Tell her. Okay. I'll drive down straight after work tomorrow, if you can wait until then. I wasn't wild about the idea, but as I'd endured one night at Vedwin Vaur, there wouldn't be too much hardship in another. I popped down to the village to pick up some provisions for the evening and then returned to the rickety kitchen table and Berrien's spiral-bound notebooks. There was one entry in particular that I wanted to revisit. I found it. You say you are entitled to 50%, but I don't know where you got that idea from because you are not, and it is not just me who says so, it is the law of the land. It went on, and this was where it got interesting. There is not a single document to support your claim. As far as I am concerned, you were never more than an acquaintance. The settlement I made with you at the time was more than fair and more than generous. Please do not ask me again. Hmm. Was this addressed to Rowena? I had the feeling it was. It seemed to be addressed to a woman... A woman with a claim, a woman who is never more than an acquaintance, but has received a fair and generous settlement. I was still in the dark, but I had the sense I might be groping towards something. I kept going through the notebooks. 
There were plenty of complaints, plenty of theology, but I couldn't find anything else that could shed any light on what I was really looking for until I came across this. I listened to your message this morning, but I know you will not do what you threaten. You know how important it is that you keep our confidence, Rowena. I have explained this to you a hundred times since your return, and you know full well that such money I have is not for me. It is not for you. It is for Alan. I have told you I must atone. He cannot be released until I have atoned. And that is the end of it. Hmm. Well, this one was definitely for Rowena. But what to make of it? The threats, the confidence, what did that mean? Some kind of secret? And why on earth did he say that such money he had was for Alan? Alan had been dead for years. I simply didn't get it. I poured another drink and kept turning the pages. The evening crawled by. I found a few more rants that might or might not have been to Rowena, but some kind of pattern was forming in my mind. There had been a relationship, but between who? Surely not with Berrien. It must have been with Alan. Not a legal marriage, but it was something strong enough to make her feel she was entitled. And there was some kind of secret that gave her some leverage. But what? Alan had been dead for nearly twenty years. My train of thought was interrupted by a sudden rush of icy air, and with it came that same strange, fluttering sound I'd heard before. I opened the kitchen door and stepped into the hallway just in time to find the cause of it. The pages of the Bible on the telephone table were turning in a draft from somewhere, turning over and over. I watched as they settled, and then walked over to see what I might find. This time, Berrien's firm pencil had drawn a square around Revelations, chapter 9, verse 6. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Well, it was certainly strange. It was tempting to think that those words should hold some kind of meaning for me. But that was a ridiculous idea. There were always rational explanations for things. It was a drafty old farmhouse, and the Bible was one of those old ones with featherweight pages... Of course, they would turn in a breeze. And if you open the Bible at random, you're pretty much bound to find something you could interpret as ominous or meaningful. That's the way it's written. So that was that. I probably should have closed the book, but I didn't. I left it open, just to prove to myself it didn't bother me. I went back to the kitchen table, but I no longer had the concentration for the notebooks... I'd drunk too much. I'd bought a half-bottle of whiskey in the village to chase the wine down, and I was starting to think it was a mistake. It was just past eleven when I decided to go up, and I was slightly nauseous as I lurched up the stairs. But at least I felt strong enough, or drunk enough, to face the night ahead. I reminded myself that I was a rational person. It was pathetic to be scared. I told myself what a fool I'd been to get so worked up about Mr. Pruthock at the start of the day. But even so, 
This time I made sure to bolt the bedroom door before I lay down on top of Berrien's eiderdown, suited and booted as before. Sleep came far less easily this time. I needed to put the events of the day out of my mind. Above my head was the framed print of John the Baptist. I closed my eyes and challenged myself to remember his story, to focus, to shut out everything else. I could recall almost nothing about him at all. My mind was blank, blank, completely blank, and eventually I drifted off. I have no idea when in the night it was, but at a certain point I had the same feeling I'd had the previous morning. There was a presence at the bottom of the house, and this time it was clearer, stronger, far more intense. There was a creak, and I felt my fists clench as the weight of the thing slumped against the newel post, then a thud as a heavy foot stepped onto the bottom of the staircase. Hang on, was this just Mr. Prothick again? No, it wasn't Mr. Prothick, and whatever it was I could tell, I was absolutely certain it was coming for me. I forced myself to think. Was I awake, or was this a dream? I had no way of telling. Thud, thud, thud. Up it came. Should I shout out? Should I phone someone? But what the hell would I say? The thing was right outside now because a faint orange glow was showing underneath the door. I held my breath. It paused before its next move. I waited. Suddenly, there was a groan of shearing metal, a snap, and then a crash as the door burst open. The thing loitered on the landing outside. I couldn't see it directly, only its reflection in the window opposite the doorway. Its features were blurred, but there was a yellowish sheen to its face. I couldn't just let it come for me. I felt hideously vulnerable. I swung my feet to the floor and took a couple of steps towards the door. I steeled myself, turned my head and confronted whatever it was that stood there. There was no doubt about it. It was Alan, the scar on his cheek, the sullen, resentful stance. But it was hard to take in quite what kind of thing he was. Did he stand on the floor or float above it? Was he lit from within or from without? There was no telling. He hovered. He glowed, he flickered between states, neither one thing nor quite something else. Then he put his head back and opened his arms to me. In an imploring gesture, he was asking for something. I knew that much, but I had no idea what it was. He brought his hands together, steepled his fingers, then pointed them at the floor. I stared into the black sinkholes of his eyes in an attempt to understand. For a second, we leant towards each other through the doorway. Then I shook my head and raised my hands in a gesture of incomprehension. His shoulders slumped. He hung his head. I wasn't sure what he expected. Then he suddenly lurched at me like a savage dog, jerking its lead in a rage of frustration. I jumped back. He swayed 
and a string of drool swung from his lower lip. Then, with definite and menacing intent, he raised the index finger of his right hand and pointed upward. He nodded a couple of times, as if to emphasize his point. Within a couple of seconds, he had faded and gone. Once again, I woke up late the next day. When I looked at my phone, it was 9.36. My head throbbed from the alcohol, and I felt uncomfortable and itchy where the clammy sweat of the night had dried inside my clothes. I stood up and looked at the picture of John the Baptist above the bed, his right index finger pointing at the sky. Was that all it was? A nightmare suggested by a tatty old print? I rather thought it might be. Then I walked over to the bedroom door and saw that the old iron bolt had been snapped clean in two. There was a cafe in the village, and I went in mid-morning and ordered a plate of sausage, egg and chips. It was a cheerful, noisy little place, presided over by a large, bottle-blonde matriarch, who kept the customers entertained with loud and apparently uproarious Welsh jokes. She shot a few disapproving glances in my direction, which perhaps wasn't altogether surprising. It was my third day without a wash or a change of clothes. Anyway, the noise and the bustle helped to settle my nerves after the events of the night. I had grabbed a few of Berrien's notebooks before I left the house, and I sat in the corner and went through them as I ordered cup after cup of tea. Most of them still didn't make much sense to me, but there was one that now suddenly stood out. You ask me yet again when this will end, but you only say that because you want more money, not because you care for him, Rowena. And I have to tell you, he has visited me on three occasions this week. He is angry, as he so often is, and I know that it is you he is angry with, not me. You are the one who put him in this position. Without your influence, he would never have done such a terrible thing. He knows I have always done my best for him, and that is what I am still doing now. When the time is right, I will commit him, and not before. He does not deserve the fate that otherwise awaits him. I read it over and over... Was Alan the angry man who visited Berrien? I started to convince myself that he was. And if it was him, what was the terrible thing he had done? And what did Berrien mean by the fate that awaits him? There was something in this, I was sure, but it was still just beyond my grasp. When the lunchtime trade had come and gone, and I was the last person left, I went up to the counter to pay my bill. Are you staying round here, then? asked the disapproving matriarch. Yes, at Vedwin Vaur. She looked at me in astonishment. Are you serious? That creepy old place up the hill? Do you know what they say about it? I was told people think it's cursed. They certainly do. So why on earth are you staying there? I'm a cousin of Berrien Price. Really? She looked at me unconvinced. Well... If you really are his cousin, I'd keep it to yourself. He wasn't exactly a popular figure in the village. No? Oh, come on. If you're family, you must know what he was like. I never actually met him. She gave me another odd look. 
Well, I'm sorry to say this about your cousin, but take it from me, he was a freak. Walking round the village on his sticks, shouting at the kids, telling us we should atone for our sins or face eternal damnation. We banned him from the cafe years ago. I handed her the money. And I'll give you another piece of advice, she said. Find yourself somewhere else to stay, if you know what's good for you. I stood on the narrow pavement outside the cafe in a faint drizzle and tried to decide what to do. There were still a few hours before Reese was due, and, frankly, I couldn't face spending them at Vedwin Vaur. I decided to go and look for Alan's grave. I don't know what I thought it would tell me, but it seemed as good a plan as any. The Prothic said he'd been buried at the Church of Wales, which, I discovered, was a twenty-five-minute walk across the village. It was a squat little church in a bleak spot, cowering in the shadow of a steep, scree-sided hill. It seemed far too small for its huge graveyard. I wandered up and down its alleys for a while. I found plenty of prices, but no Allen and no dates that approximated to the ones I was looking for. There was a woman, probably early thirties, over on the far side of the church, squatting down and cleaning some dirt from a grave. As I got closer, I saw she was wearing a knee-length white nylon coat that suggested she might work in a pharmacy or a care home or somewhere like that. Excuse me, I said. Yes? I'm sorry to disturb you, only I wonder if you knew the Price family from Vedwin Vaur. Why do you ask? She said suspiciously, turning to look up at me. I think they used to come to this church. Oh no, I don't think so. I don't mean recently. I mean a good few years back. Getting on for twenty years, maybe? She stood up and thought for a moment. Berrien Price and his brother, Alan. Her eyes widened in recognition. You don't mean the simpleton, she said, and then she pulled herself up. I'm sorry. That's probably not a word you're allowed to use anymore. But that's what he was. He wasn't right in the head. Oh, my God, yes, I do remember him. I was only a girl, but we were all terrified of him. He had that scar on his cheek, didn't he? And he would look at you with those dead eyes of his, and it was like he was capable of anything, like he had no heart, no feeling in his soul. She stopped and looked away, as if something else had occurred to her. Only I was told, I said... That he was buried in this churchyard. Oh, no, she said very definitely. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure, she almost snapped at me. Not after what happened with him and that girl. I'm sorry, I said. She couldn't bring herself to look at me. She addressed her remarks to the bleak hillside. Some say they were both to blame, but not me. That girl couldn't have been more than thirteen years old. I don't know what it was exactly. My parents spared me the details, but they brought shame on us. I know that. I see, I said. Oh, no, we wouldn't have the likes of him in our church, and we wouldn't have him buried in our churchyard, neither. And she dusted off her hands and stalked towards the gate. When I got back to the farmhouse, Rhys was waiting in the lane at the wheel of his four-by-four, I led him round to the kitchen at the back so we could climb in through the window. 
I meant to pick up the keys from the products on my way, he said. Only uh, when I got to their house, uh, there was an ambulance outside. I didn't like the sound of that. You didn't find out what it was? I didn't like to interfere, he said. Reese had brought a homemade pie and some bottles of beer. So we sat at the kitchen table and I filled him in on what I'd found out. Or the stuff that made some kind of sense, at least. I didn't bother him with the story of the curse or the fluttering Bible or Alan's strange appearance in the night. I didn't want him to think that two nights at Vedwin Vaur had made me lose my grip on reality entirely. So it definitely wasn't the products then, he said. You think this woman, Rowena, was the one who came and helped herself to the contents of the house? I think it's highly likely. And you think uh, there was something going on between her and Alan? It looks that way. And Berrien was paying her all this money so she would keep it a secret. Well, if Alan was having a relationship with an underage girl, but it's not much of a secret, is it? He interrupted. Not if you just found out about it from some woman in the village. No, I suppose it isn't. He was right. It was a bit of a flaw in my hypothesis. And what about these huge sums of money you were sending off to charities? He asked. Well, I'm guessing that is to atone for Alan's sins. That's what he seems to say in the notebook. Whatever it was, it must have been pretty dreadful if it required the proceeds of all that farmland. Yes, but you must remember that Berrien wasn't just religious, he was a fanatic. Ah, it still doesn't add up, I'm afraid, Edward. He opened another couple of bottles of beer and handed one to me. So, do we know anything else about this woman? he asked. Uh, yes, I was just about to tell you. I found her on Facebook. I gave him the details and he tapped them into his phone. There was a pause of a few seconds and then he said, She's dead. What? That's what it says? He showed me. Remembering Rowena Harrison. Rowena was found dead in her hotel room in Florida Keys yesterday evening. Anyone with any information should contact the Florida Police Department. Bloody hell. We'd agreed that Rhys would stay at Vedwin Vaur that night. I would sleep on Berrien's bed, as before, and he would take the old armchair in the front reception room. It was soon after two when I was woken by the icy draught. I sat up and listened. Sure enough, the fluttering noise soon followed. I waited and then heard someone moving around downstairs. I went out onto the landing and leaned over the banisters. Reese was in the doorway of the reception room. He looked up at me. I thought I heard something. It's just the wind, I said, not wishing to alarm him. Nothing to worry about. I went back to Berrien's bedroom, lay down, and closed my eyes. I tried to clear my mind, but I had the sense of something lurking, something just beyond my perception. When I next woke up, I knew the presence was already in the house. The newel post creaked as it had before, and the thing paused. But this time it didn't climb the stairs. There was a shuffling noise as it moved along the hallway. This time it was going for Reese. I heard a creak as the door of the reception room swung back. I was awake now, and I knew I had to do something. 
I swung my feet to the floor. From downstairs, I heard Reese make a noise as if he'd been startled. I threw the bedroom door open and felt a surge of icy air roar up the stairs. I don't know what you want, said Reese's voice below in a half-strangled sob. I don't know what you want. I clutched the banister at the top of the stairs and breathed deeply for a moment. No, came Reese's voice again, shriller this time. No, stay away from me. And then he let out a long, hysterical howl of terror. I clattered down the stairs as fast as I could and ran into the room. Reese sat in the darkness, as if he had been pinned to his armchair by an invisible force, his hands gripping the armrests, his legs wide apart, all the colour gone from his face. Are you okay, Reese? He nodded towards the fireplace. He was standing right there, he said. Alan? He looked straight at me, and his eyes, they were black, black and hollow. My God! My dear God! It's okay, Rhys, I said. It was just a bad dream, that's all. Like hell it was. He was as real as you are, standing there. Did he say anything? No. At first he seemed like he was asking me for something, begging me for help. And when I told him I didn't understand, he became furious. Then he raised his arm and pointed to the sky. Like this? I said, mimicking the gesture that Alan had made to me the night before. Not quite, said Reese, because he raised two fingers. Oh, God, I said. How did you know? said Reese. How did you know what he did? Because... He came to me last night. Well, why didn't you tell me that before, you stupid bastard? We sat at the kitchen table for the rest of the night, half dozing, half stunned, bracing ourselves for whatever was to come. Reese's phone rang just after eight o'clock. He answered it in Welsh and then sat there nodding and listening intently. Hmm. That was Mrs. Pruthock, he said when he'd finished. Her husband died during the night. I received the news in silence. They haven't established the cause of death yet. She said she wanted to warn us. She said you would know what she means. He looked at me. Well? I started to fill him in on some of the other things I'd left out the previous evening. Okay, I didn't mention this before because I thought it was stupid, but some people around here believe there is a curse on this place. Shit. They say that apart from Berrien, no one has set foot in this house for nearly twenty years. Reese put his head back and stared into space for a while. So, he said at last, nobody has been to the house for nearly twenty years. And then this Rowena Harrison turns up and helps herself to whatever she likes. The night before last, Alan holds up one finger to you. Yesterday, she died. Presumably, Mr. Pradak has also set foot in this house. I nodded. Last night, Alan held up two fingers. This morning, he's dead. You know what that means, don't you? Are you saying that you and I are numbers three and four? <sighs> Come on, 
He can't believe that kind of thing. He didn't respond. He just looked ashen. What the bloody hell are we going to do? We munched the rest of the leftover pie in silence for a while. Eventually, Reese said, So, is there anything else you haven't told me? I took a deep breath. However crazy it sounded, I supposed he had a right to know. Well, it's probably not important, but do you remember that fluttering noise you heard last night? Uh, you said it was the wind. That was only half true. It was actually the wind turning over the pages of the Bible in the hallway. It's happened several times since I've been here. Oh, for God's sake, show me! I led him down to the table by the door. Have you read this one? he asked, and pointed to the open page. I checked and shook my head. Rhys studied it for a moment. The book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 10. And he said... What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. He looked at me and shrugged. It's kind of creepy, but I can't make much of it. His brother is calling him from the grave. Is that Alan calling to Berrien? Would that make sense? Well, it might do. Although, here's another strange thing. I haven't been able to find out where Alan is actually buried. The same place as Berrien, surely. No, he's not there. The Prothex told me he was buried in the Church of Wales graveyard, on the other side of the village, but I went and checked, and he's not there either. As I spoke, the pages of the Bible started to lift, flap, and then turn over. They settled in the book of Isaiah. Rhys read out Berrien's squared verse. Chapter 51, verse 14. The exile will soon be set free, and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. Almost as soon as the words had left his mouth, the Bible started turning the other way, just a couple of pages. Isaiah 42, 22, said Rhys. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes, and they are hidden in prison houses. We looked at each other for a moment, and the same thought must have occurred to both of us at the same time, because without another word, we both turned and made our way to the steps that led down to the cellar. We picked our way past some old tools and piles of off-cut wood towards the two large chest freezers at the end. Reese took a deep breath and yanked the first lid open. Nothing. Just a strong, sour, musty smell. But the second was different. It was still working, and when we opened it, it was full to the brim with ice crystals. Reese started to grab handfuls of them and throw them on the floor. Come on, he said. Don't just stand there. Reluctantly, I started shoveling too. Hang on, he said after a couple of minutes. I've got something. He had plunged his arm deep into the ice, and he gestured with his other hand for me to do the same. I took a deep breath and forced my arm down as far as my elbow. My fingers wrapped around an object. Have you got something? said Reese. I nodded. I didn't like to think what I was holding. It was something cold and hard and awful. Right, said Reese. One, two, three, and pull!
We both heaved together, but my grip slipped. I muttered an apology. Rhys counted again, and this time we got the thing to move. Keep going! Rhys hissed, Keep going! The mass of ice crystals started to part in the middle as a large round object broke the surface, then disappeared again as one of us relaxed our grip. One more heave! said Rhys. I grunted with the effort. We both yanked, and suddenly there, emerging from the ice, was a sunken-eyed, scar-cheeked, frost-pitted face. The face of Alan Price. Involuntarily, we both took a step back. The ice had formed buboes and blisters across his face, swelling the flanges of his nose, puffing his lips. His eyelashes drooped and dripped with tiny icicles. His forehead simply glistened. And look, said Rhys, look at his wrists. Our efforts to pull him from the freezer meant that his arms poked out of the ice, and on both wrists you could clearly see deep slash marks. That's why he didn't have him buried, said Rhys. That's what Berrien was trying to atone for. My God. So that was the terrible thing. Alan committed suicide. We spent the entire day dealing with the authorities. It was after eleven that night when Rhys dropped me off at a cheap hotel on the edge of the Black Mountains. I wasn't even going to attempt to sleep. There was no logic to it, but I told myself that as long as I stayed awake, I wouldn't dream, and as long as I didn't dream, Alan wouldn't raise a third finger. I watched TV. I drank all the instant coffee in the little tubes by the kettle in the corner. I moved on to the tea. I went out and walked up and down the verge of the road outside. Somehow... I made it through the night. My phone rang just after 9.30. I braced myself for the worst. But it was Reese's voice. I'd never felt more relieved. I just wanted to make sure you were okay, he said. And also, I had a call from the folks in Carmarthen to say they'll be cremating him just after midday. It's over, Edward. It's over. The Curse of Vedwin Vaur was written by Elgin Barrett and performed by Wayne Forrester. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Woz. (laughs) 